Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. The middle section in Luke 7, verses 18 to 35, reveal that the Pharisees and the other religious authorities are rejecting Jesus mainly because of who he eats with. Sinners, even tax collectors, those kinds of sinners. The people with whom Jesus shared table fellowship was the great scandal for the religious elite. It really was, especially in Luke. If Jesus was truly the Messiah sent from God, he would act a certain way and receiving and welcoming sinners to the point of eating with them, looking like he's willing to associate himself with them, that was not it. Even John the Baptist struggled with this to some extent, probably for much different reasons, but to some extent he did. How can there not, with the coming of the Messiah, according to Isaiah's prophecy, be mass judgment of the wicked? Not eating with them and welcoming them. But for the Pharisees and religious leaders in Israel, the inbreaking of the kingdom into our world and Jesus and his forgiveness was hidden from them because they rejected him. They didn't see themselves in need of him. The wisdom of Jesus displayed in His table fellowship with sinners and righteousness for them by God's grace leads directly into this final section, the climax of chapter 7 this morning. We should never be too quick to wish for death and judgment on someone else, no matter what they've done. And we wouldn't be. We wouldn't be if we were more aware of our own situation. Now, June, it's not your fault, but I changed the title in my mind. I think the theme here is actually canceled death. I changed the title in my mind. Jesus came not to get payment from us through our good works and our obedience, but to cancel our debt for us. We all owe too much to ever pay it back. And when we grasp what it means for God to cancel our debt, our love for Him will be too much to contain. The world won't know what to do with us. The love Christians have will be in direct proportion to their awareness of their own forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for this text in particular. I thank You for including it in your revelation to us, I thank you for what it teaches us, Lord. I pray that I would continue to learn it and believe it. I pray that you help me preach it, the truth from it that you intended to tell us in it. I pray that we would hear it as this. We would hear it as your word and not mine. We would hear it as your truth and receive it for ourselves. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke 7, verse 36 one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So, you find out in Luke 7 that Jesus eats with Pharisees too. He's invited to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. We find that out in verse 40. Probably in the context of what was called a Haburah meal, where a guest was invited along with others in that culture so that he might teach the dinner crowd some truth. There were uh, They weren't highly closed off affairs, so... Uh, on purpose so that uninvited observers could still stand around outside the home or around the edges and watch or listen. At this point, Jesus 
was still considered worthy of table fellowship in the home of a Pharisee, but was most likely invited to be heavily questioned, actually, about his teachings, not to learn from him. This is a slightly more serious meal than what Jesus experienced back in chapter 5 in the home of Matthew, the tax collector. These guests are reclining at table. It means this is a more relaxed atmosphere, not so much a party. Their elbows, one of their elbows is on the table. They're reclining there. Their, uh, their legs are out to the side or behind them. It really ought to give us some comfort that Jesus accepted this invitation. He came to seek and save the lost, and most of the Pharisees, we know from verse 30, were lost. So, yes, if he's invited, he goes. And if Jesus won't eat with people who don't think they need him, many of us would be without hope too. Verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Oh boy, this is not okay. This was not encouraged. It was not expected, even in the context of a meal where uninvited people could still observe. And rest assured, Luke is most likely being a gentleman by saying she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. He doesn't give any details. We can only work with what we have. But by describing her as a sinner, Luke is telling us that she would have been banned from eating with the Pharisees according to their table laws because she's unclean and therefore was unworthy of an invitation. So her sins were probably more obvious than others, more likely to define who she was as a person in the eyes of others, like the Pharisees, than the sins of other people. And yet it is this banned, unclean, uninvited woman, not his host, who greets Jesus with signs showing that he is the most honored guest. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, it was considered shameful for a woman to unbind her hair in the presence of men in this culture. But she loved Jesus too much to care about such things. And by the way, Jesus couldn't have cared less about her hair. But word had... She's crying so much. She she goes well beyond simply untying her hair. She's extremely unkempt here. She was crying so much that her tears poured onto Jesus' dirty feet. She used her hair to dry them off as she kissed them and wept and poured this alabaster ointment over them very costly. Word had probably spread that Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house reclining at table with some others, and she heard about it. And when she hears it, she has to get there. She has to get to Jesus. She wanted to show her love for him. She wanted to show her thankfulness for him. So she brought an alabaster flask of ointment to honor him, to anoint him. The text doesn't say when, but at some point, apparently, she had either heard Jesus preaching or heard what Jesus preached about, that he proclaimed that the forgiveness of sins had come. Release for the captives. Liberty for those who were oppressed. The text does make clear in the words of Jesus that that's what she is responding to. So she's heard it. That's why she was there, to receive this forgiveness. She loves Jesus for this. She's so thankful for Him, and that's what this display is all about. And it says something about how approachable Jesus would have been, because if she was a woman of the city in that sense, and you know what I mean, she would not like, and understandably so, men very much. 
And Jesus is no such threat to her. Like so many men were. She's so thankful for Him. This scene is the perfect closing to this whole chapter. She stands as a personal and individual example of those who know they need it so badly that they joyfully receive the forgiveness God is providing in Christ. She is acting how all Israel should be acting. She is acting how all of us should be acting this morning. She is acting how the world should be acting. Because Jesus came to forgive sins. This is the only response to Jesus that is actually fitting. She comes to Him because she believes that His presence signals the presence of the forgiveness of sins. And her demonstration of gratitude and love is her response to that forgiveness. They signal her repentance for her sin. But remember the heart of the Pharisees. Now remember where Jesus is. Remember where she is, what she's interrupted. Go back up with me to verse 31. Remember, this is the heart of the Pharisees. To what then, Jesus says, shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And here's another one of his children. So Jesus, his host, is not happy in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. For Simon, this is so important in the flow of Luke and in chapter 7, for Simon, whether or not Jesus was actually a prophet sent from God was determined completely by his response to this woman at the table. It didn't matter if she needed forgiveness and Jesus could give it. That didn't matter. What mattered to the Pharisee was that prophets sent from God would be pronouncing judgment on this woman for her sin. Not letting them touch him and cry on his feet and wipe his feet with her unbound hair. Imagine the names they would have been calling her, the things they would have been thinking of her. We men are usually very good at our judgmental critiques of women, right? No one who comes from God will let himself be touched by such a sinner. That's how Simon thinks. For them, that you can't be from God. Look at how you treat her. Luke lays it out for us right here. Make no mistake, Jesus' overwhelming kindness to even the worst of sinners without dealing out death and judgment made them think he was a false prophet. If you treat sinners like that, there is no way you're from God. Does that kind of prejudice still reside in our hearts today? We're not talking about condoning sin. That's a straw man argument. Jesus didn't condone sin. He forgave it. But if you would have asked one of these sinners who they wanted to eat with, it would have been Jesus, not the Pharisees. It would have been the one who actually was holy, not the ones who said they were. Are we still so eager for others to receive judgment that we can't even be thankful for our own forgiveness? 
Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, this would have been, this is Jesus at his best. This would have been amazing. So you're Simon. You just said that to yourself. And Jesus answering, what? answering what? Said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Simon hadn't spoken any of his thoughts out loud, and yet the Lord had heard him. The Lord heard him. The Lord knew. When someone's forgiveness is on the line, it's not Jesus' major concern whether or not he offends his host. Because his host is in as much need of his forgiveness as the woman at his feet, but the host doesn't see it. So Jesus speaks in verse 41. A certain moneylender. So imagine you're Simon. You've just said in your head, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So a moneylender has two debtors. One owes 500 denarii, the other 50. That's basically two years wages versus about two months wages. And Jesus says something crazy about the moneylender. When he realized that neither debtor could pay him back, he canceled the debt of both. That's not what you do. That's not what you do. They owe the debt. Good people pay their debts. What money lender could stay in business if he just canceled debts? I mean, maybe, maybe you could forgive the lesser debt. Maybe. But the bigger one? That's just foolish business. That's irresponsible. Wait till word gets out. Everybody that needs money will be coming to that money lender. Can't you hear us all complaining to God about His free grace right here, the times that we've done that? You make forgiveness sound so easy. I don't do that. People will get the wrong idea. If God goes around canceling sin like some irresponsible, big-hearted moneylender cancels debt, you see, people are going to get the wrong idea. They're going to take advantage of Him. If you preach grace like it's just your debt getting canceled and you don't have to pay anything back, people are going to get the wrong idea. Well, maybe, maybe God's grace really is greater than all of our sin. Maybe He can't be overdrawn. So He has nothing to worry about when He cancels a debt, no matter how big it is. Maybe He doesn't need the money. Maybe that's not why He lends. And maybe He doesn't need the people whose debt He's canceled to be the gatekeepers of what He's allowed to do and how He's allowed to do it. Maybe. Have you listened to Jesus' story? Have you heard Him compare God's forgiveness to canceling debts? What would we do? How would we police the Lord? You can't talk about it like that. Well, the moneylender is like that. He canceled both debts, the huge one and the small one. Now, where is Jesus going with this? 
Who will love him more for that? What does that have to do with it? Right? Well, that's weird. You don't normally think of being in love with the person who cancels your debts, but who will love him more, Jesus asks. And it's an extremely, when you put it like that, it's an extremely obvious answer, isn't it? Even Simon gets that in verse 43. But this isn't a discussion about finances, is it? Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Right? Because Jesus does. Simon doesn't even see her. Right? He sees a sinner. He doesn't see her. Jesus sees her. She's a person. She has value. She's made in the image of God. Of course Simon sees her. Jesus says, do you see her? Self-righteous lech. (laughs) Do you see her? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves Little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Why hadn't Simon acted like this woman and treated Jesus with such unbridled love? Why? Because Simon didn't think he had enough sin to need his debt canceled. See, Simon works under accounting. Lord, I can, I know that I've sinned against you. The Pharisees would not say they were sinless. I know I've sinned against you, but I can pay back my debt. See, I can prove it to you. I can obey the law to such an extent and for so long that it will that will have canceled out my debt. I'll just pay it back. You've done so much for me. Let me do this for you. Right? When we are not aware of how much debt we have, we are poor hosts. For Jesus Christ. We know from verse 50 and the very end of verse 47 that Jesus isn't teaching here that loving much is the way we get forgiven. Notice that. Faith receives God's forgiveness all by itself later in verse 50. Her faith in Christ that she showed through repentance is what saved her. Jesus is explaining why this woman poured out her love on Jesus and why this Pharisee didn't. One knows how much debt God has canceled and the other doesn't even know how far in debt he actually is because he thinks he can pay it back. And that makes us poor hosts for Jesus. Verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that in light of the shock in the room, Jesus' focus is on her. Let them talk. See, that's let Pharisees talk. 
they're going to do it anyway. Jesus is saying, Let, don't worry about them. You have received my salvation. You go in peace. It's fine between you and I. I've canceled your debt. You, you owe nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. That's when, when you cancel debt. Right? We all know this. I'm not being like pedantic. We, when you cancel debt, the deal is you don't owe this anymore. I, I have no power over you like that. You can go in peace. You don't have to worry about me coming to get you for it. Christian, you don't need to worry like that. Unbeliever who is at this point rejecting Jesus as your Savior. That's not the way it works. You don't need to worry that someday He'll call the account due. The account was called due 2,000 years ago. And He paid it for you. Simon's rejection of Jesus' forgiveness, which is put forward here to personify the rejection of the Pharisees to the wisdom of God revealed in Jesus in chapter 7, that's shown in his table fellowship. The way Simon acts at table towards sinners is a demonstration of what they think of God's wisdom. Jesus' forgiveness, that that's what he's come to do, that's shown in his table fellowship. Who do the Pharisees eat with? Who do they invite? Who's welcome at their table? Simon doesn't want sinners like this at his table in verse 39. He doesn't want them there. And in his view, God wouldn't want them either. Right? God helps those who help themselves. Blah, blah, blah. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Blah, blah, blah. Right? That's Simon. So to him, at least for now, Jesus is an absolute scandal. And listen, let's be honest for a minute. If you go by the parable Jesus chooses here, forgiveness is a scandal, if that's what it's like. We want all the math to add up in such things. What, that's what we don't maybe realize about ourselves, all of us. We want a zero balance at the bottom of the spreadsheet. We want it all to make sense and to work out. Forgiveness doesn't work like that. Spreadsheets do. Forgiveness doesn't. The world does. The law does. Jesus doesn't. The gospel doesn't. And if we keep trying to protect God's money lending practices because we think He'll be taken advantage of, we're going to turn the gospel of grace into a gospel of works, which is the doctrine of demons. We don't know if technically she had committed more sins in her life than Simon had or not. The point is she knew that she had debt, so she treated Jesus like the guest of honor at table. She was glad he had come. She poured out her heart of repentance on him and her tears and her ointment. And Jesus forgave her of all her sins, of everything she had done in verse 47. All of it. And think about what that would look like from the outside. It's forgiven. The debt's canceled. You don't owe it. Go in peace. No! If you'd been trying your whole life to prove yourself worthy and pay God back, you would be furious. You're not from God. 
In people like Simon's eyes, she owed two years of wages to God for all the sins that she had committed. She's 500 denarii in debt. And in people like Simon's eyes, he owed a lot less, maybe 50 denarii in debt. I'm not saying I don't have debt, but I don't have as much as that. And in Simon's eyes, since that's the case, since he has less debt as far as he knows, he is the one that Jesus would forgive and recognize and eat with and have table fellowship with. You're making it look like God is this irresponsible money lender who just cancels debts. What kind of business owner? How are you going to stay in business if you just go around canceling debts? God's out of the death business. Christ has come. Now it's on you if you don't want it. You see, Simon operates under the idea that the less you need from God, the more He will do for you. Right? Because in Simon's eyes, God is not a moneylender who cancels debts. Simon is only thinking about the judgmental part of God who calls debts. Right? That's how the world does accounting. Not Jesus. It, it, it doesn't work that way. And we need to adjust our thinking about the gospel so that we think about forgiveness and canceling debt like Jesus did. It, it, you and I are not accountants for God. We, we don't have ledgers. Because when you're like that, you know what? You aren't loving. What if Jesus actually just cancels debts? What if that's the essence of the Gospel? You say, do you really think God doesn't take sin seriously, beloved? The cross is where God made it very clear how seriously He hates sin and takes sin. So that argument doesn't even stand. What if no matter how much you owe, it's canceled. I imagine if we were aware of how much debt had been canceled, we might get some small sense of how much we ought to love God. In fact, I bet that since love for God comes out so often in obedience to Him, we would do more good works if we were more honest about our debt. But we're all so busy trying to look like we don't need as much as that one does that all our good works get stifled by our own self-righteousness down in the books of our accounting. Listen, crying doesn't automatically mean you're sincere. It's not really what Jesus is responding to here. Crying doesn't gain forgiveness. It's not her tears. It's her love for Jesus because He's forgiven her that we're meant to see here. Repentance takes hold of everything God is giving in Jesus. Don't cover up your sin. Don't delight in it. Don't become apathetic about it. And don't take it easy on it. But, but at the same time, don't act like you don't have it either. Don't act like it's not a problem. Don't act like if God did do accounting like a responsible money lender, you would be okay. You and I would not be okay. 
we'll never be able to pay God back. And it's insulting to try, because trying means you have no sense of how much debt has actually been canceled. Right? That's, that's the only way we'd try. We thought, you know what, I bet I can pay this back. Or we might say, I know I'll never be able to pay it back, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Why? Why? Because I have to do something. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's not what good works are for the Christian. They're expressions of love because we're safe. They're not payments for a loan. If, if we knew how much we owed God, we'd stop this obsession with paying Him back. And we'd just show up and cry on His feet and wipe His feet with our hair or use a towel if you don't have any like me. Don't try to deny what you are to make yourself believe you're righteous. Don't act like you needed less of God's grace. It's nothing to brag about. I only had a hundred denarii forgiven. Okay. Okay. We don't love much because we don't think we've been forgiven of that much. We've got time to be judging. We've got time to look down our noses at others and see them as things and not people because we don't know how much of our own debt has been canceled. I, I do it all the time. I forget that people are people. I see them as things. I see them as their sin. They are that. And I'm studying this week and it's like Jesus is saying, do you see her? Do you see him? Do you see her? Do you see him? No, Lord, I see enemies. I see that sin and that sin and that sin. Why would, why would, I be, why would the preacher be like that? Because the preacher doesn't have any sense yet of his debt that's been canceled. God help me. And to this, Jesus says, period. That's the way it is at the end of verse 47. Folks like prostitutes and tax collectors and murderers and thieves, see, they know there's something there. They know when they get forgiven, they understand something about what it costs because sins like that are more obvious. They feel more wrong. Well, we're not the ones making the scale. So we're all about appearances. We judge by appearances. So if your sin appears, it's much easier to look down on the druggie walking on the sidewalk than it is the reviling believer. It's much easier. They look like what they are. The rest of us look like we're just, everything's good. We're clean. We're good. We, we don't, we're not the ones who evaluate sin. To be in debt for 50 to God is as desperate as being in debt 500 to God. It, it doesn't matter. You and I can't pay it back. But God cancels debts. That's why we're Christians. That's why. Not because we don't have as much debt, but because God cancels debt. 
if we were to take just one hour today, if we sat down for one hour and literally were completely honest with ourselves, forget what the preacher thinks, forget what each of you think about it, just forget it. Just sit down, be honest for an hour and write down every sin you've committed just this week that you can remember. Then maybe don't do that. But maybe that would help us realize how true it is that if Jesus doesn't just cancel all this debt, we'd be done. Because we aren't doing well enough yet to pay God back for His grace. We might think we are. That's because we don't understand what we owe. That's like owing somebody a trillion dollars and giving them a dollar a month. I'm working on it. Thank you. Thank you for that dollar. It means nothing. Because you got into debt, you get into debt because you're irresponsible, usually. Trust me, you just rack up all kinds of debt because you're irresponsible. So what makes us think? How, how do we get in this mess with God? We do what we want. That's how we got into debt. If, if, that, if, if that problem isn't solved, how are we going to get out of it? Right? Why would we think that now, now we can pay the debt back? We realize if we did that, we're a lot less improved than we might think we are. As Pastor Rod Rosenblatt, who just went to be with the Lord last Friday, said, Christ died for the sins of Christians too. So we can never pay this back. Our hope is not in our good intentions to do so either. If I owe you more than I have the ability to earn, you aren't going to get your money back. Well, what does God do when you can't pay? Beloved, this is what makes God so great to the world. And it's also why they hate Him. But this is really it. What does God do when you can't pay Him back? He did it. At the cross. That's what God does because the world can't pay Him back. Gives all to us because we have nothing and He knows it. The fact that that is the front of His heart for you is why Jesus came before judgment did. Our lack of genuine love for God, for one another and for our neighbors and for our enemies, the reason we're not usually a genuinely loving people but an uptight, sinfully judgmental people is directly related to our lack of knowing of how much we've been forgiven. Jesus says it. He who is forgiven little, loves little. It's a fact of Scripture. It's divine truth. That's where the problem is. Why don't I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why don't I do what He says? Because I have no sense of what He's forgiven me for. I think I've been forgiven of a little. So I love a little. I love sometimes. I love in certain situations. I don't love like this. I don't love God like that. All our Christian ethics and good works problems, they're gospel problems. We don't see the cross clear enough in our vision. 
And we mistakenly think we can solve our problem with the same kind of thinking that caused it. I can do this myself. I can help. I know things too. Just like Eve. A tree looks good to me. I'm able to run my own life and be my own Lord. and I can handle the debt. Just tell me what I need to do to pay it back. We think we have some money to use to settle our debts. No, God doesn't take payments. That's the thing. There's nowhere to, there's no bank. There's nowhere to pay. There aren't any coffers for this. He cancels debt or you can't come into the feast. Repentance lays hold of all God's money. Repent and receive Christ. That's it. That's all. He's aware of every single penny you owe Him. It is canceled in Christ. Come home. Come home. Stop this nonsense. Come home. So, quickly here at the end, I really am almost done. Let me... Let's take two things from this text. First, God cancels debts. Right? doesn't matter how big the debt is when the one who is owed has more grace than we have debt. Receive by faith the free forgiveness of literally all of your sin in Jesus today. Repent and be saved. And go in peace from this place because Jesus said you could. There may be people that know what you owe and watch you get forgiven of it and get mad. Eyes on Christ. You go in peace. Secondly, be honest about who you still are. There's no honor or extra righteousness or standing to be gained in figuring out you don't owe as much. And if we were spiritually wise, we'd realize we go further into debt actually as we live, not less. We're not slowly climbing our way out of this hole. We're That's why God cancels debts. Jesus is bigger. Jesus' grace is greater. That's how we love Him much. Do you want to love God more? Are you serious when you say that? Do you want to love Him with heart and mind and strength? Do you want to do that? Do you want to obey Him? Then get honest about your debt. There's no getting around Him here. He not only said that if you're forgiven much, you'll love much. That's true. He also said that if you're forgiven little, you'll love little. Again, those are both facts. And that, look, there's no such, that's what Jesus is saying. There's no such thing as little from his perspective. 50 and 500 might as well be 10,000 and a million. It doesn't matter. But there are people out there that think they only have a little. That's the problem here. Jesus isn't saying there are people who only need forgiven for a little. I mean, I suppose a 60 year old person has sinned more times quantitatively than a 16-year-old person has, but that's not the point. The point is to stop counting and realizing that debt before God is debt we cannot pay, whether it's 500 or 50. Because that determines your love, and God is worthy of all our love. Heart, soul, mind, strength, whatever label you put to self. Why did Simon not love much? Because he thought his debt was small. Jesus tells us that. That's why he didn't love much. 
It wasn't a theological misunderstanding. It wasn't a doctrinal issue. He didn't think he'd been forgiven of much or needed forgiven of much. So he didn't love much. Period. What does it say then when we don't love God much? It's a statement about what we really believe God has forgiven. And look, you can anybody can say, I love God a ton. You have no idea how much I love God. That's fine. This is when I would say to the person that's always pushing back on grace, but didn't you say if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? Right? Don't you say that? That oh, Look, hey, you need to keep the commandments. Fair enough. Why don't you... You know why you don't keep all of them? It's not because, well, nobody's perfect. You don't love God very much. Jesus said that. We're all in debt here, beloved. It doesn't matter which way it goes, how our debt gets racked up. We're all in debt. But Jesus cancels debts. So let's be happy and love. And know this as we close. God does not want to show us the amount of our debt to rub it in our faces. It's so we would know that His grace is greater than even that. God, what about that thing? What about that thing? What about that thing I did? Or for some folks that have, you know, what about what happened to me? Doesn't that taint me forever? Doesn't that... What about the things I've done? And Lord, I, I, I try by Your grace every day to do better and I want to glorify You and honor You, but I keep messing up. Right? You keep going further into debt. And so do I. So let's stop counting. Let's stop thinking that forgiveness works like accounting does. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And let God worry about it if it seems irresponsible. He's got it. He's, he's perfectly capable of guarding his own treasuries. See, the gospel is only bad news if you're not a sinner because only sinners get forgiven. Jesus didn't come to get anything from you. He came to cancel your debt. So he doesn't ask you to pay him back. He asks you to enjoy his money. That's good works. That's obedience. you truly want to love God for who He is and all He's done for you, then repent of all your sins and let Him pay the whole thing. One drop of His blood is worth infinitely more than 500 denarii worth of sin. He certainly has enough to forgive you.